Justice Facts reveals the dark drama behind real-life criminal cases. Truth is stranger than fiction. That's what this true crime podcast is all about. Just the facts. Well, January 6th, the day right-wing extremists broke into the U.S. Capitol, killed a police officer, and desecrated a symbol of democracy, become a rallying cry for violence against the federal government. April 19, 1993, marking the fiery, deadly end of the 51-day Branch Davidian siege in Waco, became a rallying cry for militia movements. Two years later, on April 19th, Timothy McVeigh, a Desert Storm veteran, and his accomplice blew up the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Are we about to see a repeat of violence by extremists? My co-host, former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston, personally experienced both of those events. I covered the Branch Davidian siege. Johnston prepared the search warrant for illegal weapons that ATF agents were trying to serve when the cult opened fire, killing four agents. And Johnston later prosecuted some of the surviving Davidians for murder. Two years later, both of us immediately suspected that the Oklahoma City bombing was the work of homegrown terrorists retaliating for Waco. Our guest today knows the mind of extremists. In the summer of 1984, Carrie Noble came within seconds of committing what would have been the largest domestic terrorist act in U.S. history at the time. As one of the founders of the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord, CSA, a cult paramilitary group, he carried a bomb into a gay-affirming church intending to murder over 70 congregants. Noble was sentenced to five years in federal prison for the conspiracy, and after his release from prison, Kerry Noble redeemed himself. Today, he is a Christian minister and the author of The Tabernacle of Hate, Seduction into Right-Wing Extremism. Kerry was extremely helpful to me in covering militias and the Oklahoma City bombing in the aftermath. And Bill Johnston participated in the prosecution of the CSA after its intense standoff with federal agents at the group's compound in northern Arkansas in April of 1985. Kerry, thank you for joining Bill and I today, and Bill, a small world. Certainly is. <laughs> so we've seen what inf- unfolded at the Capitol, and we've seen these groups, uh, left and right, Antifa, Proud Boys, Boogaloo, uh, QAnon. What's, what is driving this? I mean, and I, I thought maybe this would all be gone after Oklahoma City bought me, and it would have been a purge. It all still continues primarily because people are still dissatisfied with their lives. As long as you're dissatisfied, you don't like how life is going, you always want to find someone else to blame. That's typical nature, I think, especially if you're at all on the, in any kind of fringe of the right wing, that's your primary hot button. I don't like my life. Who can I blame for it? 
And when you have somebody who will come out and espouse even strong, more strongly the object of, of your problems, then you get sucked up into this thing of, okay, I, I see that, I get that. And then when you hear the violence, you just keep going inch by inch further to the right. So what was the state of your life back in the mid-'80s that drew you into the CSA? I mean, you were the number two person. Well, remember, when I first joined what we called the farm back then, it wasn't CSA. It was not paramilitary. It was not racist. It was just a church group of eight to ten families wanting to live together, worship together, and uh, work together. So that's what drew me. It took four years more before CSA came on the scene and evolved. In the book, I talk about the old thing of uh, the frog in water. You know, put him into a pan of boiling hot water immediately, and he jumps out. Put him in the cold water, slowly heat it up, and he'll boil to death. And that's what happened to us. We just we got so used to being together and moving as a unit that once we got into CSA and all the right wing stuff, it was hard to see where we were at and ended up boiling to death. Well, Bill, is it kind of hard to believe he's somebody was part of that is sitting here today, especially after you had a role in the prosecution? It's encouraging to me that the flex of human nature, you know, that that people of all sorts, we all change through our lives, but that uh, someone can have the can form the distance between themselves and an event or people to see it with uh, objectivity. I've tried to do that about my own life from time to time, which is very healthy to do, but I think it's really it's really something. And uh, my involvement with that case was was very limited. It was only uh, when uh, I think it was Beam. Lewis Beam. Lewis Beam that was uh, he and Renton. Is that correct? Renton was the other one. I may have the name wrong. Anyway, one of them uh, came to the Waco area and was hiding out. And I went with the FBI SWAT team when I was very young uh, to try to uh, find him. I wrote a search warrant, I think. And uh, they ultimately did find one of the two guys uh, north of Waco. And then the other one was found in Mexico. Beam, I think, was found in Mexico. As I recall, near Guadalajara. But, you know, there are some people who are in the Davidian, you know, cult in Waco that uh, talk about it with some objectivity. Not as much as you have, though. Um, Most of the ones I've spoken with, and I speak from time to time with some former uh, Davidians who either live in Waco or have some legal question they've asked me about. Um, For the most part, there remains something in favor of the Davidians um, and against maybe law enforcement. But, uh, you know, that, that it's I think it's rare for someone to have what you have, honestly. And I'm sure you can. there's a spiritual answer to that probably in your case. Uh, but uh, at any rate, I, I think it's amazing and wonderful. And Terry, w- walk us through the seduction that you talk about. What is that process, and what do you think some of these people that broke into the Capitol. What's drawn them into these things? Because we've seen military veterans. We've oh, gosh. Seen, uh, a lieutenant colonel from the Dallas area yeah, who was an a Air Force, uh, A-10 F- war, warthog pilot. Yes. How's that happen? There's 
basically kind of two factions in a certain sense. One is your from your patriotic point of view. This this group uh, romanticizes the American Revolution. So we want to go back to 1776. You talked about Constitution, uh, the original interpretation of the Constitution, that kind of thing. That's the surface argument. Let's get back to how it was. The underlying problem with that is in 1776, only white men had authority, power. Property owners, actually, I think. property owners, yeah. so women had no choice, no voice. Obviously, minorities didn't. We had slavery. So when people talk about let's get back to those kinds of days, even if it's subconsciously, what they're talking about is let's get back to slavery. Let's get back to women being property. Because then, and from their point of view, in the romanticizing of it, uh, Men had the say-so. We ruled, we, we uh, went out and conquered the West and all that kind of stuff. So that's that part of it. So to them, they want to get back to what, to what it used to be like without really realizing what it used to be like. I mean, <laughs> we, nobody knows what, what it was like during the days of the Revolution. So, Carrie, you know what's interesting here? I've covered terrorism extensively after being in Iraq, and— um, that's the same thing that jihadists talk about. That's what ISIS is about. Yeah. Everybody wants to get back to what they perceive as the good days. And primarily what the good days, again, means is when the men controlled. Women were afraid to talk, you know. So especially in the right-wing movement, you have a lot of spousal abuse because women are property. Uh, Christian identity, you had a lot of the... I mean, even with Randy Weaver, you know, his That's wife, when, he, when she was on her uh, cycle, had to go out to the outhouse building for a week. Old Testament scriptures. Similar know. to the uh, LDS extremists in West Texas yes. years ago. Yes. And the women's dress was very uh, two or three hundred year old uh, dress in terms of the length of the dresses, the hair, and it, it is subjugating the women That's right. to a large That's degree. Exactly right. That's what the white male wants. The The biggest problem with all of this is, when it gets down to it, it's just fear of men losing power, white men losing power. The other side of it is the religious side. So especially for Trump, which just still boggles me, from a, from a right-wing religious point of view, they see all everything that happens as steps towards the end times, which is what we did at CSA, right? So they can you can justify a lot of stuff if you think it's getting you closer to the time of Jesus coming back. And when people start getting tired of just hearing Jesus coming back, then they figure, well, maybe God's waiting on us to do something. So you try to push the, and that's the, the Davidians, yeah, who exactly at right. some point, uh, when Vernon Howe, David Koresh, would talk about the end times are coming, the beast is coming, it's going to be a war, will be translated or killed, and all that. There were a few people in the group that uh, somewhat respectfully said, "When? Let's let. I mean, we're we're tired of waiting." 
And he proposed um, a plan during the before the raid and all that that we might, he said to them, we might do like they did in California where they went into the McDonald's and we try to convert the unbelievers, but if they don't convert, we'll kill them all and we'll retreat back to the compound and there we'll uh, fight it out with the beast. Mm -hmm. In other words, if prophecy doesn't take place in our time, we'll cause prophecy to take place in our time. Exactly right. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, We did it. It was done in the the 80s with the right-wing movement. You get to the point where you're tired of the talk and you want the action. So with everything that's going on right now, you've on one side you've got the let's get back to the revolutionary war, to the other side you've got let's get Jesus back here, you know, to solve all the issues. Both the, both sides think they have the solution when really they're the problem. They don't have the solution. And if you have someone that has both those parts, you have a someone that's truly committed to maybe a really violent act that doesn't think of the consequence because they think they're right and they're bringing about the prophecy or they're um, on the right side as the revolutionaries were. Yeah. And then when you, you, if you're this individual with the mindset, and Jim Ellison was this way, Jim used to always say, I'm going to go down in history as a major figure in the Second American Revolution. So you start to kind of identify yourself with you know John Henry and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. So you're you're going to be up there in the league. Whereas if you're on the other side on the religious part, you know you're going to sit on the throne. You're going to rule over Israel. You're going to, you know, it's all about still power. <laughs> no matter which way you're going to go, you still want power. You're not doing it for humility or as a servant or anything like that. It's just simply to get power. I don't know if you recall the Texas. Republic of Texas movement. Uh, uh, what was that guy's name? Robert uh, McLaren. Richard yes. McLaren. McLaren. And, I, and I covered it. Yes. And, yeah, he, and they actually called me on the phone when right. they started the shootout. It was right. like this. It was like we're taking on the beast. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he saw himself as a historic figure as yeah. well. I'm not sure he'd get on Mount Rushmore, but maybe <laughs> yeah. somewhere in the big band on the side of a mountain. But he, yeah. he saw himself as uh, as a substantial a historic revolutionary figure that was going to bring Texas back to where it was in 1823, and which all the bottom line to all this objectively, as we look at it now, it's ridiculous. It is. But if you're in it, it's very difficult to see. As as I've said about the Davidians, people say, well, you got a Harvard lawyer in there. How could he? You can't say stupid people. And many cults have attorneys, doctors. But if someone can if, if a leader can convince you that what he tells you, and if you rely on it, it will affect your eternity, yep. then people will do anything. Because what is this life, a thimbleful, compared to the ocean of eternity? And that's what they'll tell you. Therefore, a sacrifice of blowing something up or a sacrifice of, of uh, shooting someone or whatever it may be is not that big a deal if you think it's going to just be your slip and slide into eternity in a favorable way. And and that's because so many people ask me how in the cults I've been involved in, we discussed a methamphetamine cult, which we're going to air I think pretty soon about, there was a bunch of Satan worshipers, but they were convinced by the head guy they were on the right side. So they did things. These were some of them college educated people. They did things that were, was 
if you looked at it objectively, you just couldn't believe that someone mm-hmm. would, that with a brain would do that. But they were convinced in a spiritual way they were right. Yeah, because it gets back to this whole thing of if you're not happy with your life. So if you as an individual feel you have no value, you feel like your life is has no meaning to it, you have not made any kind of an impact, and then somebody comes along and says, oh, but you could be so valuable to us. You could have your name in history books. You could go down as, you know, a founding father in the Second American Revolution or whatever. Then you, you kind of soak that up, you know, and it and it means, you know, here's somebody who values me, even though you don't realize that guy's just manipulating me, you know. But you, you get sucked up into that, and it's it's hard to not get into it. It always struck me as how narcissistic these yeah. leaders are. You talk, always. talk about what you saw there, and, and you remember the uh, the kid, oh gosh, Cole, came up yes. at, after Koresh, right. and he believed he was Koresh right. reincarnated. <laughs> right, right. Reincarnated, right. and he styled his hair like Koresh. Yes, he he found Koresh's old motorcycle jacket. He found Koresh's, you know, souped-up must hot rod that right. he had and he just took on this whole persona and i'm now going to deliver us to the hereafter and there have been others since then oh yes that have uh played the role if they didn't say they were literally him they certainly attributed the leadership to themselves and yeah they they uh it was their their glory but it is it's the narciss- narcissism and and uh really a sociopathic uh, view of things which is that it's utterly selfish it's what they want and heck with whatever happens yeah what do you think that uh we're sitting here on the 12th of january what do you think the next week or two weeks or six months may hold do you think there's uh, enough momentum with some of these groups or do you think there was a scare put in them with some of with so many being arrested regarding the capital thing what's your Both. feeling I mean, you, okay. you will have people who, because of the arrest and the bad publicity media, uh, that they all say, hey, this ain't worth it. They'll get out. You know, they weren't that strong to begin with. Um, but you'll have others who will get emboldened, especially I personally think Trump will probably uh, pardon everybody that's been arrested. Uh, if he does that, that's, that's going to embolden other people. Now, fortunately, you've got, as far as the inauguration, uh, National Guard's going to be there to help, you know, if anything does happen. But you got state capitals that are going to be under siege, um, so people don't have to necessarily come mm-hmm. to D.C. They can go to their own states and do stuff. It's disconcerting to me that people can be carrying arms in the Capitol, and people aren't shocked by that if it had been blacks doing that with guns everyone would have been shot and killed do you do you think there are in terms of the this sort of group that we're talking about now to, to throw a big net over all of them that went to the capitol are there hundreds of those people around the country that are that extreme are there thousands or tens of thousands in your view i think there are tens of thousands who can be extreme thousands who are closer to crossing a line but only hundreds who will actually cross the line it's the further that you go the scarier it gets because there's a point where you start thinking about if you have a family what's going to happen to my family 
what's you know even if you say I can go to prison it's no big deal but if something happens to my family so if you're a single guy of course you don't have that sort of doubt yeah. in there McVeigh McVeigh, yeah, McVeigh the jihadist yes yeah. uh, often young single <clears throat> now you cross that line what what pushed you across and what happens that you decide well we've got to accelerate this with weapons well the acceleration first of all of weapons came because um the the whole end time scenario thing you know we've we got to protect ourselves city's going to collapse uh going to have anarchy in the country bad people are going to come out to the countryside mm-hmm. we got to protect ourselves so that's where the gun started the for me personally pushing me to the point of being willing to take a bomb into a gay church was pressure from Jim Ellison to try to, for me, trying to please the leader of the group. Uh, him and I had been on the outs for a while, and uh, I just I wanted to get back into the good graces. Uh, fortunately, obviously, I didn't do what I was going to do. And what, what happened? Why didn't that happen? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I go into the church, uh, like you said, about 70 people on a Sunday morning. Uh, briefcase with C form explosives, um, and going in there, I knew I had one of the other men with me, and I knew we couldn't just go in there, set the trigger on the briefcase, and walk out. Be a little suspicious looking. So I told the the guy we're going to st- stick around for, you know, maybe half an hour. Well, that was just enough time. Um, and it was kind of funny when we first got there, the male pastor was talking about his sexual relationships with the male choir director so you know this sort of started to justify our actions for being there uh but then it was kind of odd because obviously you got the guys on one side you got the women on the other side you know affectionate towards each other but not the sexual fervor that we were kind of programmed to expect uh and then as I, we were sitting there longer and they were doing the announcements, that kind of stuff. Then I started looking around. Well, one thing you don't do in the military is put a face to the enemy. You know, right? So now I'm in the midst of the enemy. It's kind of hard not to put a face to them because I'm looking at them in the face, realizing these people are no different than anybody else. You know, nobody's got horns or a third <laughs> eye, <laughs> you yeah. know, some of the stereotypes. And then they start playing music. And... I had never thought in terms of gays and lesbians worshiping God. It just, that was a foreign concept to me. And when I saw them um, lifting their hands, you know, looking up to the, to the heavens and stuff, uh, then I, it hit me they're no different than I am. Trying to find their place in the world as homosexuals uh, and trying to cope with who they are and that kind of stuff. And that, so I, identified with their struggle immediately you know because i was still trying to find my place with csa with jim ellison in the in god's plan and all that kind of stuff so at that point they ceased to be gays and lesbians and they became christians and i couldn't kill christians so packed up and left wow let's pause for a moment for a message and then we'll come back Okay, we're back. Carrie Noble, you were telling us that one of the things that drives membership or the seduction of these extreme groups is there's something lacking in your life. What do you think that is today? What, what are people seeking or they're not finding? 
the root of all of us that we want to be accepted for who we are. We want to feel like we fit in society, that we have a place, a purpose, um, and I think that's lost. Uh, it's easy to look back in your life and only remember the good, and you forget the bad. You know, that's human nature. Mm-hmm. We don't want to think about the bad. So we tend to compare now to just the good of the past without taking into account the bad that helped to shape us also. You know, the trials, the tribulations we had to go through, the family issues, the everything. So, you know, our country, I mean, what are we at? 370 million or something like that now. When I was a kid, we, I can remember 250 million when we crossed that. So we are feeling more crowded all the time. I've been in Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, since 1987. When I came back here, we were less than, I think, less than 3 million. Now we're at 8 million in Dallas-Fort Worth. So traffic obviously has increased. So I think we feel pressured from outside forces. Uh, corporates have changed. You know, in the old days, you could stay at a place for 30 years, retire with a nice pension. Now the average person goes through seven different careers. You know, lots of uncertainty. Lots of uncertainty. What about? Uh, I've, I've wondered this. It doesn't necessarily fit, but I've wondered. Uh, if you look back over, let's say, our parents and our grandparents' lifetime, you had people that were mostly agricultural, and mm-hmm. and you had the, all the hard work that people did. Then you had our depression. Then we had World War II, all of which gave us a purpose. Now that purpose maybe it's been to eat, but we had a purpose, mm-hmm. and we had a unified purpose. Often, uh, yes, certainly World War One, World War Two, and then at some point, uh, maybe in the eighties, we started. Some people would say we got spoiled, but we so many conveniences and the ability to get food and to do other things almost irrespective of where you are in life. In other words, there's such the food pantries and then also just the ability to to have a a job and a car, which me, most people didn't have a car. I mean, it was a luxury to have a car. So I'm just wondering whether or not we're in such a state of uh, – uh, satisfaction and lack of purpose that we sort of to some degree are wondering about individually looking for maybe a higher purpose which war gives us of course which is a horrible thing mm-hmm. but it does mm-hmm. it gives us a purpose and or a, a national event um, and unfortunately with the with the pandemic instead of everyone working together we're actually been drawn apart we're more and more separated I noticed that uh in the crowd that went to the Capitol, nobody's wearing a mask, and I'm sure that was part of their, you know, screw mask. Here we go, oh, sure, uh, and we'll show them. And they said, "That's you know, who knows how many people are going to catch it through that big crowd." But no matter what, I wonder, our to some degree, that we don't have our rudder fixed in a certain direction to, as a as a country anymore. And this sounds silly, but you know, we all used to watch the same television channels. There were only three. Everybody watched Guns. Was it Gunsmoke on a Sunday night? I think. Sure. But everybody sure. Watched, and all the kids at school. Oh, did you see what happened? Well, there's five or 600 channels now. There's no commonality of interest of purpose. We're all, all fractured. And I wonder, do you think and that it, may play into it at all? And in or? fact, you're afraid to be an individual. Yes. You know, because right. you're afraid of being scorned, put down because of it. I and mean, it was bad enough when, I mean, when we were growing up, if you were the nerd, you were picked on. That's right. Yeah. Kind of thing. So oh, you yeah. had that. But it's 
so much worse now because as we were talking about earlier you can get on the internet you can say all kinds of stuff right. about people so there's there is more division in everything i think also when you're talking about you know the agriculture days and world war ii a lot of that was people learned to take responsibility for their actions for their lives we don't do that as much anymore now we want to blame mm -hmm. so that's a huge factor ask teachers uh teachers who used to if they sent a bad note home the kid got in trouble at home now they complain about the teacher that's right the teacher gets blamed rather than the child who right. didn't do their part yeah i lived in fear of what my father might do if he found out i misbehaved at school <laughs> right i right. mean in fear oh right. yeah yeah, I know my mother told me when I first started school, she said, if, if the school says that you've done something wrong, don't try to explain yourself to me. The school's right, you're wrong. Yes. And you'll get in trouble again right. when you get home. It's almost that the opposite the rule. now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm from rural East Texas. It's Trump country, been Trump country, and I think I understand it because i, I got to tell you, a lot of people, they feel forgotten. They feel the government that wasn't work for them, and I've seen job after job in what were middle-class manufacturing jobs leave and go to China or India, go overseas. And they don't feel like anybody cares about them. And it's, that's again part of the whole, I'm unsure of the future. You know, we, not so much we, but you know, there's, there's so much of the terminator type mentality uh you talk about when we went from agriculture to manufacturing and now we, then we went from manufacturing to robotics taking over right and in the mindset of a lot of people how soon are the robots going to take over mm -hmm. you know and where mm -hmm. are we going to be so yeah. you, you know you're kind of fed this along the way also and so you don't have uh, a strong vision you know when we were growing up you kind of knew what you were going to do early in life you know if you were a farmer's kid you were going to farm you know uh, if your dad worked for a particular company maybe you'd get on that company or you know you'd go into the military for 20 30 years um i know kids now who got degrees and have no idea what they're doing what the what am i going to do with the rest of my life yeah, my degree and with $100,000 in student yeah. debt or $200,000 in student yeah. debt, right? So, again, if, the, if, if you've built your future around something that's not you, then you're stuck in this place of then who am I? What am I going to do? Who's going to take care of me? I can't trust the government. I can't, you know, my parents are old or whatever, you know. And uh, I've, I've had business people all the time telling me you know i hired this young person and they don't want to work you know and it's a it's a issue you know where we grew up in a generations where you start working at 15 16 yes, absolutely <laughs> yeah. So, yeah you know and you were taught to save you were taught to oh you, know, you want the first car well yeah you got to make it you got to pay for that first car you know now you know you have kids whose parents give them brand new mm -hmm. you know expensive expensive cars so it's I understand that you want to do your best for your kids, but we've gotten to the point to where we're not considering the consequences or the ramifications of what we do. You know, okay. same thing with the attacks on the Capitol. I doubt very seriously these people had any thoughts about how this is going to come about. At least one pretty quickly said, uh, 
that he regretted it, that he got caught up in the moment, mm-hmm. that he's embarrassed his family. You see this immediate wave of remorse that came over him, which is what you want people to feel. Right. Now, not all have said that, though. But, yeah, it was, you know, I think it was in Huck Finn, not Tom Sawyer, that, that Twain wrote about the mob. Uh, this scene, I think, was either a lynching or something, but Mark Twain so beautifully wrote from a child's observer point of view what happens when a mob begins to move and act and how there's a synergy, a very dark synergy that flows uh, from that that can end up in a terrible, terrible result um, because the mob moved it that way. The individual gives way to the movement of the mob. And I have a feeling that if they were candid, many of those people would say that's what happened to them. Uh, they started to act, and then just the wave carried them all the way. And you still and get back then to what's my life. That's right. Now I'm, I can identify with something bigger than me without stopping to think, do I really want to be something like this or not? It's just that it's bigger than me. I can belong to something. So it still gets back down to this root of people don't value who they are and and build on that. They want to identify with others you know that's right you know and back in the campaign 2016 the worst thing you could have said to people was call them the deplorables because they kind of confirm yeah that's what you you don't respect me you don't care about me and it just fed it yeah and it's i've got six children two of my children voted for trump which just (laughs) you know grains at me but it's, you know, I've, I did teach them to, you know, vote the way that you want to, you know, however you vote, I just want you to vote. Um, but you, people who, who haven't been in a cult or the right-wing movement or something similar don't understand how quick you can see deception after you've gotten out of it. You know, when you have Trump as the candidate getting up there and being a bully on stage, calling people, other Republicans during the debate, names, well, you realize, I mean, this is just a bully. And other people look at him as, this is a man who says what he thinks, and he'll change everything. Right. Uh, and that's just a deception. So you don't understand that people who are like that, the narcissism, how strong that is, and then they're just manipulating. When I wrote the book, I explained uh, how strongly the the rulers within the movement are just manipulators, that they just want you to, you know, they don't want to go out to the war, but they want you to go out to the war. And that's what we're saying now. Well, my wife and I both worked in politics. She worked for the late Senator Lloyd Benson, very effective. He was known as a gentleman in the Senate. I worked for the late Wright Patman, who was the dean of the House when he passed away. He'd been there forever. And what? And, and I've gone, in the midst of all this, I've talked to my friends that we all were youngsters out of college, went to work for very, very powerful members of Congress. But we, we've talked about there was always respect. Mm-hmm. You you never said anything insulting to anyone. You treated everybody respectfully. And despite political differences, policy differences, you got along. But somewhere this all, 
the social fabric just got ripped. Then it got ripped before Trump. It started with Clinton, uh, from my point of view. You know, that's when everybody started kind of choosing sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's you're right. It, when we used to, what I call statesmen, yes, you know, which there are no statesmen any longer. But when the statesmen came together, they understood it's not me versus you. It's how can we work together to solve to solve the situation, get a bill that we're both not exactly completely 100% happy, but we're happy enough together and for the good of the country. You don't have that. The the independent senator from Maine was on 60 Minutes this this past week, and he talked about that very thing, about uh, the idea of looking at the— large picture of what's best for the country and I don't I'm not familiar with him but he said things that I hope we hear more of which is that uh, it's not about the ego of the individual it's about the good of the country and we'll see if that turns out to be so Uh, I hope for both sides that it that it is because if we can do that and move forward in some positive ways perhaps there'll be less um agitating factor Mm -hmm. out there which irritates these folks and causes violence well the fbi issued a warning back december 15th 2020 about uh incendiary devices turning up at these future demonstrations particularly molotov cocktails we do know that they were found in the capitol lawn and now they're what they're really issuing more warnings what do you see coming just based on your experience now that trump has has been voted out and once the inauguration occurs, I'm hoping for everybody to get a little quiet. You know, let's see what Biden will do. Let's see what happens. That's my hope. In reality, I know when I was in the movement, we talked about when things settle down, that is a problem because then you the, quote-unquote, the enemy, the government, the law enforcement... Uh, are quietly going down the same course that they've been going down, and which is, from our point of view, uh, doing away with our rights. So from the perspective of being in the movement, you look at um, when it's quiet as just talk. Again, we're going back to that just talk stage instead of the action stage. That's dangerous because... When, when extremists feel like that's what we're doing, then they'll get more agitated and they'll start to think, well, maybe somebody really needs to do something. Uh, the Molotov cocktails, for example, I'm surprised nobody actually used them. You know, I mean, talk about an opportunity. He had, what, 12 or 15 of them or something. And, yeah. you know, if he'd have lit a few of those and thrown them, how much would that have done? Um, so people look at... Um, things like this and say, well, we didn't do enough. You know, I'm, I am absolutely convinced the, the most famous picture of Tim McVeigh when he's first coming out of the courthouse, he's got the U.S. Marshals around him and he looks at the camera and everybody's crying, screaming uh, baby killer and that kind of stuff. I'm actually I'm very uh, strong on the, I think that McVeigh was probably to himself thinking, you're goddamn right I did it, you know. And you're cowards wow. if you don't do it also. I think that's what he wanted wow. to say. You know, goodness. He was so disappointed that there wasn't more actions after what he did 
that he would i think that's when he he wanted chose to, be the, to die he wanted to be the fuse and not the bomb necessarily yeah, that's right wow you know, um, yeah a friend of mine coincidentally named lowell sprague who's an at was an atf agent he's i think retired now lowell was uh, heroic as many of them were during the waco shootout itself and trying to protect others and lowell is on mcveigh's left arm two years later uh, when they arrested McVeigh. But yeah, McVeigh, you know, McVeigh came to Waco, unfortunately, was uh, observed at a great distance, the compound from a high point on the eastern part of Waco, uh, and got stirred up. I was so worried when that happened, Oklahoma City happened, that it was a response to Waco, and it turned out to be. But uh, again, you know, McVeigh, I guess, was going to light a fuse somewhere wherever he could, but uh, just horrible. And imagine if he could have recruited three, four, oh, yes. six other right. people to do the same thing at other. And that's what I'm worried about now. At the same time, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah, now. I hope I hope that that uh, no one goes that far. You really were helpful to me in covering the militia movement and everything, and the extremists coming out of of Oklahoma City. But it Waco was a galvanizing event, and you know I didn't know until shortly before Oklahoma City that. This whole movement was percolating and rising, these militia groups and upset and everything else. Randy Weaver was an early, yeah. early little domino mm-hmm. that fell, and some of the groups out of uh, yeah. Idaho, Northern and Florida, Idaho, and, and they were yeah. like, I told you so. Right. Um, you don't want to confirm in someone's mind they're right about something yeah. that's, that's really yeah. dangerous. <laughs> so that, that fuse burned for two years. My concern is, is this fuse really very short now? It's short. It's a, again, it was, a lot of it depends upon what government does. But obviously, if Biden moves to the left, and there's a lot of, you know, quote-unquote socialist policy, then people on the right are going to mm-hmm. be more vocal. And if you're, there's a certain point where vocal's not enough. You know, and especially, I mean, what's now? I, my youngest daughter, who again voted for Trump, uh, texted me the other day that uh, Fox is now, they now consider Fox liberal. Well, you know, how dangerous is that? And there's this, what is it, Newsmax is the new thing. Um, I mean, that's okay if people think that and hear that and want to be. I mean, we all have different opinions about so many different things. It's just, as you said, when you whittle it down from tens of thousands to thousands to hundreds, and then it just takes one. Just takes one. Exactly right. And it's hard to cross that line into domestic terrorism, in, in a, like a Timothy McVeigh. But when somebody does cross that line, we've seen what can happen. Yes. How do you stop this? How, how, how does this get tamped down? I, I say stop. I don't know the way to stop it, but how does this get yes. tamped down to where we have vocal people but not violent people? Uh, there is so much that needs to be done that I, it's almost impossible to see that it could all be done. And it would take two, three generations probably to do it. Simple things like I'm still amazed that in high school in the United States of America we have no financial courses for kids to take Mm -hmm. how to be responsible with money you know how to build a future how to be able to retire at 40 50 years old 
still not taught. You know, if you're lucky, you'll have six weeks on how to, how to balance a checkbook. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, finances are the number one reason uh, most people get divorced. Finances are the number one reason why people go to bankruptcy because they haven't prepared. So you, that is to me keeping is people a fundamental. That, keeping people out of despair, which may, despair may lead to yeah. desperation. So you, we got to do things of responsibility, getting back down to that. Financial responsibility starts as soon as you can get that first paycheck when you know when you go to work at McDonald's or something. Learn to put money aside. Don't spend it all. Learn to invest. But we're not teaching people that still in this country. Um, shutting down the religious right enough to make them think. I'm, I've been I don't watch it or listen to Pat Robertson at all, but, you know, here's Pat Robertson who says Trump's going to win the election, then the country's, or the world's going to get hit by a giant asteroid. Doesn't happen, of course. Then he's, then what's he do next? Instead of saying, well, I was wrong. No, he's not going to do that. He gets up and says Trump just needs to go ahead and say Biden won. Well, what about your false prophecies? You know, he's not held accountable right. for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that swayed people. So until your Pat Robertsons, your Rush Limbaugh's, and all those people from Fox are held accountable for what they say, there's no reason for them to stop saying what they're saying. Same thing on the on the left, you know. And then, in, obviously, in Washington, D.C., we've got to get back to having statesmen and not politicians, not people who are getting paid by lobbyists or, you know, corporations, that kind of stuff, you know. Not an easy thing to do. But it's going to take time. Well, and the concern I know in covering international terrorism is after 9-11 was the lone wolf. It's hard to organize 19 hijackers. And I will never forget, I was standing in uh, Birmingham, England, in the Midlands, 90,000 Pakistani community, where um, jihadism was taking root. And I went to an Islamic bookstore, and he was trying to oppose it. And the group that had come in had said uh, they were from Egypt and Arab countries, and they said, you know, we, we speak the language of Mohammed. You don't. We really know what this means. But I will never forget the thing he said about the future. He said, um, um, I don't have to give you the gun. I just have to put the idea in your head. You will go find the gun. Yep. And that stuck with me forever as we've seen this. And, you know, domestically, I'm— I'm afraid we're seeing that here. Yeah, it's uh, with the ideas. Yeah, it's the ideas, and and the subliminal thing about that teaching is that you have the chance to be more powerful than I am. Now you're looking up to me as the leader, right? I plant this seed in you, and what you're going to do with that seed in your mind is say, I can do something he's unable to do, which is going to elevate me above him. Again, gets down to the self. You know the ego, and it's that's the manipulation part of what leaders do. You know, you can be important. I may not go down in history, but you could go down in history. Frightening. Yeah, I'm kind of speechless. I mean, you think it'll get? It's going to get worse before it gets better. It has to get worse before people realize it needs to get better. You know, I, I'm reminded there there was a thing on Facebook one time of a girl who's typing away on Facebook and 
you know, she's got like 400 and something friends on Facebook. And her, and the next caption shows her parents out having fun on the beach with their friends. And she said, I feel so sorry for my parents because they don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've become. Then. That's what we've become. I, it was like uh, oh, probably four years ago, two of my granddaughters were in our living room, one on each end of the couch, texting each other as opposed to just talking together you know and the more that we do this until we people see that there is no communication on the internet and there is no communication with uh texting and that kind of stuff communication is is real life and you've got to be able to see each other in the eyes you've got to see their face you've got to touch them and hug them and all that kind of stuff the divide is going to get stronger and stronger wider and wider well, now I'm going to sound like an old fogey, but, you know, going back to the 60s, you know, we we didn't have time on our hands. We had part-time jobs, but also we, you know, we had hobbies and we built things. We built motorcycles, cars, worked on things, uh, did stuff with our hands with other guys and gals. And uh, that, I, I don't know, I just feel like that was somehow connected us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything that you do with your hands. I can remember, uh, all, well, all of us can remember, you you didn't stay inside after school. You know, mom said, go out in the yard and play. Right? Yeah. Go get dirty, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I drive up and down neighborhoods and don't see anybody outside playing, you know. They're in there playing the, the games. I've if got a grandson, a, that's all he does is play games. I was going to say, if we had a baseball glove, a baseball, and a football, we were good for yeah. nearly all year. Or yes. you could find the stick and get, hit the can right <laughs> <laughs> the street. I mean, it sounds antique now, but I can remember when we did that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, not, you just you, you did anything to amuse yourself. Yeah, I'm not sure we're better off with an anonymous electronic world. Anyway, I don't know how it goes back, but uh, I don't think we're better. Yeah. If you don't see happiness and joy and fulfillment in your life, you'll create something that you think brings you that and believe that you're making a difference. Yeah. Carrie Noble, we're going to close on that. Uh, we want to thank you for coming in. And for our listeners, I want to remind you, Carrie's books and Amazon and elsewhere, The Tabernacle of Hate, Seduction into Right-Wing Extremism, uh, I've read it over and over in reporting and all, but it's not just the right. It'll give you insights. Of the, it's the same principle. Same thing goes on. So to our listeners on Justice Facts, Bill Johnson and I, thank you. Thank you. And thank, thank you, Kerry. Appreciate it. Justice Facts is co-hosted by Robert Riggs and Bill Johnston. Associate producer, Siler Burr. Original music by Blair King. Social media producer, Grace Woodward. Publicity, Tim Livingston, PR. Graphics, Brian David Kerr Designs. Additional music by Stan Woodward. Justice Facts is a copyrighted production produced by True Crime Reporter.